ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, Andrew West with the Religion and Ethics Report right here on ABC Listen and RN, indeed on RN Summer. It's not long now until Christmas, which is a red-letter day, even if not officially, on the Christian calendar. The celebration of Christ's birth has long been a time when even those who, let us say, wear their faith lightly or, or actually may have lost their faith, still tip their hats to the Jesus story. And the Jesus story is, at its core, about salvation. This is a rapidly secularising Australia, but even the figures suggest it's still a minority that totally rejects the idea of a divine presence or a saviour. So what replaces the God of the Bible? John Carroll is one of Australia's preeminent public intellectuals. John was for many years a professor of sociology at La Trobe University. He's the author of more than 10 books. His latest book takes a journey through politics, history, but most especially through popular culture. This is what really gives it a bit of oomph. And he's in search of the new redeemers. John Carroll's book is called The Saviour Syndrome, Searching for Hope and Meaning in an Age of Unbelief. Well, it's obviously linked to Jesus. And the background is that we live in a, by and large, a post-church post-Christian era, post-church in the sense that only 5% of Australians go to church regularly, so it's a very small minority, post-Christian in the sense that generation after generation is now growing up in this country that hasn't got the foggiest idea who Jesus was or anything about his life. The Bible is a closed book. But my whole work is intrigued about how people find meaning, and in this particular context, which is the one we live in, I'm engaged by the question of what sort of unconscious knowing, what's reverberating under the surface that has come to replace, if it has, the sort of more secure answers that God and Jesus used to provide. But we live, I think you say, in a void, don't we? Not Christian, but not wholly committed to nothingness. There's not a complete rejection of the divine. No, absolutely not. There was a, a large survey in Britain about 20 years ago about what people believed and, you know, 10% were atheists and it's probably still about that figure. 10% or so, probably a bit larger, were deeply believing Christians. But the vast majority in the middle said, in effect, we believe there's something there, there's something out there. We, we don't know what it is. We're uneasy with God, but there's a sort of metaphysical, supernatural, there's there's something more than just the sort of physical material existence that hardcore scientists like Richard Dawkins tell us that we're living. So it's in that context of the something there. This book's trying to flesh out more concretely what the something there might be. And I partly take my cue from Raymond Roland, the, the French writer from 100 years ago, had an exchange with Freud in which Roland said, I always have the sense of eternity somehow around me, a sort of oceanic feeling. And he said, most of the people I know have this sort of, for want of a better metaphor, an oceanic feeling within which we live. 
I mean, you can think of Australians worshipping on the beach as an obvious example here. And Roland went on to say he thinks the essence of every religion is this oceanic feeling. And it's completely irrespective of creed, doctrine, all the particulars of any religion. What drives religion is this oceanic feeling. Now, I mean, I don't think I'm not the only person. This oceanic feeling hasn't gone away now that God's dead for most people. And the Australian beach is a classic example. What I'm trying to do in the book is shift to ask the question inside the individual, is there an equivalent to the oceanic feeling? And the argument is that in spite of Jesus, in most senses, having departed Western consciousness, he lives on as a sort of unconscious archetype in the culture. It's like he's sort of in the blood of the West, this sort of Jesus presence. Mm. Well, is it just one Jesus presence? Because, I mean, you talk about Ramon there. I also note that you quote Max Weber, the great uh, 20th century German sociologist, who I I think said, in the absence of God, which of the warring gods, plural, will we serve? What are the warring gods of 2023, John? (laughs) Well, the book's broken into three parts, which mimic the Christian blueprint, as I suggested. And basically, there are two Jesuses. There's the church Jesus of basically Luke and Matthew, who the external figure who comes to save the world, who forgives sins. And he's the saviour that comes from the outside outside and beyond the individual. Part one of the book goes through modern examples of that sort of saving figure and the search for that sort of saving figure. The other key Jesus is is the Jesus more of Mark and John, whose central teaching, at least in my understanding of it, is that the key truth, the essential thing to know about the human condition, about, you know, why we're here and what so forth, is the I, that sort of his two words statement in Mark is I am. And this section of the book is on the the sense of an internalised saviour. It's come through most obviously in modern Western countries like Australia in the belief in authenticity, Mm. that if a person's true to themselves, if they're honest, if they're sincere, they wear their heart on their sleeve, there's a sort of saving inner emanation that comes in that experience. And in the second part of the book, I go through examples of the inner saviour. I was going to ask you about authenticity later, but I'll stick with it now because I found this part of the book fascinating as I did so much of it. In fact, I was reminded um, of the closing scene in a a boutique movie by the filmmaker Whit Stillman, who makes these brilliant films about the kind of introspection of the American liberal upper middle class. And it was um, the last scene of, uh, of the movie, The Last Days of Disco, and the lead character refers to the maxim to thy own self be true and then he says but maybe this is bad because maybe thine own self is bad you know that shakespearean admonition to thine own self be true it's premised on the idea that thine own self is something pretty good being true to which is commendable but what if thine own self is not so good what if it's pretty bad would it be better in that case not to be true to thine own self well (laughs) Of course, there's a big debate about that. So Jean-Paul Sartre was believed in authenticity, but he, he didn't necessarily think you needed to be a good person. But most of the proponents of to thine own self be true, including Shakespeare, where the saying comes from, think that the authentic self should be a good self. A mass murderer can be true to himself, but that doesn't make him admirable. 
whereas authenticity in the main has become an ideal which which fuses a sort of truth of being, a being concept with the moral concept of being good at the same time. I take my cue from Princess Diana in the, in the book and you know the extraordinary tragic presence she became at the time of her death particularly and suggest that the great appeal of Diana depended to a very significant degree on the sense that she was authentic you know she wore her heart on a sleeve people felt she was the queen of hearts she was the people's princess because we sort of trusted you know, what we see is what we get, unlike the rest of the royal family, which is full of masks and pretenses and distance and coldness and, and all that sort of stuff. And in a sense, she's, she's a sort of saint of authenticity in, in that context. She was extremely neurotic, very disturbed and did many, many crazy things. But that side of herself, caring for the afflicted, was quite genuine and was good. She was essentially very good. I think the British people need someone in public life to give affection, to make them feel important, to support them, to give them light in their dark tunnels. The princess took on more demanding crusades, touring Angola and Bosnia to campaign against anti-personnel mines. The most photographed woman in the world was finding stability at last. I'd like to be a queen of people's hearts in people's hearts, but I don't see myself being queen of this country. She did everything because she, she felt it was right and it was, the, it was what she wanted to do. She didn't go by what she thought was the best thing to do or, or be told to do something. She did it from her heart and, and, and fully immersed herself into it. And she cared. She cared massively. She was the people's princess. There is a problem, though, that I detect, and I think you detect it too in, in the book, with the cult of authenticity, because sometimes we want, especially in a public figure, a bit of a front, a bit of an artifice, don't we? We don't necessarily want all of that public figure's own personal traumas and demons foisted on us, do we? I mean, we do want leaders who can put that aside and and put on a brave face when necessary, I would have thought. Yes, I think that's very true. And, and I think there was ambivalence about Diana. There was a sort of bit of a sense of we should be ashamed looking at all the sort of intimate crying and disclosure of self that came with Diana. I think with politics, though, we step into a different way of looking at the world. And it's not a way of saviors at all, except in a rare case like Abraham Lincoln, that, you know, there's a realistic sense of ourselves that says, basically, politics is a rational business about running a country. And, you know, don't expect to find saints or saviors in politics. That's not their business. A good politician shouldn't aspire to be a saint or a, a saviour. But there have been rare exceptions, like Abraham Lincoln in America, who has been for much of the West a sort of saviour figure with a strong spiritual presence as well as a very practical political persona. And a martyrdom. I mean, that is very important. And a martyrdom in the case yes, of Abraham yes. Lincoln. Yes, that's very true. And the, the sort of that image that we all know the six foot four frame stooped with a harrowed face, deeply saddened by all the people who are dying in the American Civil War. You can see the burdens of office in his face and, and also the sense of omission. I mean, it, this is in a way Jesus-like. And then he dies right at, he's killed right at the end of that particular story. But it's almost as if, and 
then I think this resonates to something of a, of a saviour dimension. There's a sense of fatedness, I think, in that looking at Abraham Lincoln closely, that I very reluctantly have been called to this moment in history, this very significant moment in history, and it's my job in this four years I'm president to confront the horrors of slavery, confront the horrors of the Civil War, and bring all of this to a resolution. This is the person. There's a sort of law, a higher law governing a figure like Abraham Lincoln. And I think it sort of unconsciously, vaguely emanates from his story in a, which, in a way that people respond to. This is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you, speaking this week with the writer, sociologist John Carroll about John's new book, The Saviour Syndrome, Searching for Hope and Meaning in an Age of Unbelief. We talked about Princess Diana, the late Princess Diana, Abraham Lincoln, both of them martyred or meeting a very tragic, violent end. You also mention Florence Nightingale, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, only one of them actually a politician. You do say there's something Jesus-like or traces of Jesus in all of them. What is that? One of the things that's replaced institutionalised religion in our world is the archetypal story that comes down in every culture's got its archetypal stories, which come down from a long time ago, and cultures vary on what they are, of course. In the West, ours come from the Greeks, and they also come from the the Jesus narrative. In the Jesus narrative, there is this archetype, which we sort of know in the cultural bones of the suffering servant, for example, which you certainly see in Abraham Lincoln. I look at in some length at Harry Potter as a sort of example of a child as saviour, at least in the imagination. And by the end of that story, Harry Potter, very, very troubled on his own, has taken on the cares of the world, is very much like, very much in that tradition of the suffering servant that Jesus was. Mm. Children are very interesting in this context because, you know, the one thing most adults these days would really martyr themselves for using the full religious concept of martyrdom is their own children. At that level, one example of an external saviour today, the first type of saviour, is the child. The one part of the Jesus story that's still alive is the nativity, the birth story. I think that's purely because of the amount that we've come to invest of a sort of sacred hope in children. I mean, Christmas itself might die if that goes. But then the sense that this child arrives in the world, it's sort of caught up in the song like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star that, that, that sort of everyone knows. There's this, this miracle. It suddenly arrives from nowhere, tiptoes into the world, and the world then, led by the parents, becomes infatuated by the possibility, the possibilities. I mean, often it really inflates what this poor child's going to have to grow up into in terms of his parents' expectations. And we have a lot of literature where the child is the saviour. I mentioned Harry Potter, sort of Anne of Green Gables. This film, the Paddington films are of a childlike bear that saves a run-down dysfunctional family. There are endless popular culture stories today where it's the child who's the redeemer. Mm. This is another example of an external saviour. 
But that's a good thing in the sense that the child holds out hope, doesn't it? I mean, the adult, especially when you get to the middle-aged man like me, is a cynical, spent individual. The child who's not really, in my case, not really going to do much to help humanity, I'm afraid. Uh, but, But every child holds within him or herself the hope of greatness. I think you're not fair to yourself. I mean, there's a sort of openness and enthusiasm for ideas and wanting to know what makes the world tick. And that's the child naivety and questioning that I think we all at our best hang on to. And this comes in the Harry Potter story very profoundly. There's the threat that when you grow up, you're going to become a muggle. You're going to become a bored, run-down adult for whom life's pretense and and not worth living. So, yes, there is this huge tension in the the awe that surrounds the child. I think, to me too, a rational parent will think, well, this child's arrived because of pure coincidences. Husband and wife meet, we get together, we decide to stay together. It just happens that one year there's a sort of, there's a conception for one reason or another. A whole series of very, very random, the rational self will say this, events have come together to produce this child. But the moment the child is born, thinking completely switches out of that mode, more into a sort of religious saviour mode, that life is unthinkable without this girl, this boy who's tiptoed into the world. And, and of course, it would be absolute, it is absolutely devastating for parents if a child dies before they do. In the West, echoing through this under the surface, um, which is what I'm trying to get at, are saviour motifs. Yeah, one of the more interesting, I don't know whether I'd say you cast him as a saviour motif, but one of the appealing things about this book is you cast this net really wide across both high culture and popular culture. You mentioned Tony Soprano, the fictional mobster. (laughs) What does that figure of Tony Soprano, who was a complex individual, a fictional individual, but how does he play into the saviour motif? He sets the scene. He's a very important figure for me. He arrives in at the start of the 21st century, almost inaugurates the 21st century, one of the most insightful works of, of literature, of art of any form of the last two or three decades. He's a mobster. He's a very violent man. We, we see him over 86 episodes. In the first episode... A flight of ducks arrive in his swimming pool and he's and he is completely infatuated by them. And even at one point, and talking about archetypes, in his dressing gown one morning, he, he steps down into his swimming pool and moves towards the ducks. And the imagery is of straight out of Renaissance art of baptism in Christianity. Now it's like these saving birds, wild birds have arrived, then they fly away. And he's devastated. In fact, they fly away. They don't come back and he collapses in a panic attack. He collapses unconscious, the edge of his swimming pool, in a panic attack, which is a symbolic death. At first it felt like ginger ale in my skull. ducks is almost as if his soul has flown away. Now, Tony's a very successful man. He's rich. He provides for his family very well. He's a brilliant leader of his gang. 
He's very attached to his gang. He's, he's quite a good father of, of two children, a particularly a difficult teenage boy. He's sort of devoted to his wife, although he kind of has endless affairs. I mean, he seduces women all the time. But something's not right. There's a magic missing from his world. And right through the 86 episodes, Tony is in search of what the ducks the, the enchantment that the ducks represent, the saving enchantment, they would be his saviour. And he's not like a lot of other modern failed characters. He doesn't lack passion. I mean, arguably the greatest play of the, the 20th century, Waiting for Godot, has two tramps sort of ambling along, clowning, believing in nothing, having no reason to get up in the morning, lacking passion, lacking drive. Mm. I mean, one of them talks about that someone called Godot is going to come with man with God built into his name, and God probably doesn't exist. But in the background here too, which is another framing picture of the question I'm raising at the start of the Saviour Syndrome, is the sense, and one of the tramps says that when God arrives, we'll be saved. I mean, the tramps have got no idea what saved might actually mean, but that's the hope. As with Tony Soprano, that's the framing question for this quest. This is the Religion and Ethics Report, and we're speaking with the sociologist John Carroll about John's new book, The Saviour Syndrome, Searching for Hope and Meaning in an Age of Unbelief. another character from popular culture, Don Draper, who was the central character in that brilliant series Mad Men about an advertising executive, an advertising industry, but you use him to represent another obsession or another, let us say, quest for the divine that we have. What is our obsession today with vocation? Because Don Draper was very committed to his vocation as an advertising executive, as a persuader. A vocation was the great gift of Protestant Christianity, certainly in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, to the modern world. The, a concept of work or central life activity, which is much more significant than, the sort of, than it being a job, than just a sort of getting through the day, earning an income, providing for your family. A sense of work or doing things where if you pull it off, if you do it with excellence, there is a sort of almost transcendence. This is crazy, of course, looked at rationally, but there's some sort of higher fulfillment. Writing a memo where you think, I got that just right. Professional sport is the type of vocation. A footballer in form who sort of flies through the middle of the ground with sort of almost godlike rhythm. God's given wings to his heels, literally. Exactly. Exactly. In the Greek or in the Christian sense. Exactly. The deep feeling in people in in the West, um, not just in the Anglo-Saxon countries, that if only my work could become a vocation, something with more significance, something I believed in, something I took to with a passion and, and brought me deep fulfillment when I got it right. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about this as sort of the inner fibres of the individual's being and the sort of demon that lives within all of us that, that sort of drives what we do, that fashions our dreams, that sort of shapes our life, although we usually don't like to admit it. There is a sense of 
maybe not we're not conscious of it, guilt within the self linked to this sort of demonic force, the self within that we don't understand, that we don't know. This force needs to come out. And vocation, well, Freud said this too, not just Max Weber, vocation work is the most satisfying, is the least bad way of expressing in action in the world these inner feelings, these inner conflicts, these inner bubblings of, of worry. Yeah. And the good, the good life for many, many people requires vocation to be a significant part of what they do. Yeah, John, you, you're speaking there of vocation as, in a way, replacing God, but a lot of people who are people of faith, they may not be people of um, church-going disposition, but they think... Uh, with great sincerity, that their job, their vocation is a gift from God. It is what they're meant to do. So vocation doesn't have to replace God, does it? No, no. It sort of is like that. If you believe in God, yes, frame it in those terms. If you don't believe in God, frame it more in Max Weber's terms, that I'm being true to the inner fibres of my being is how he puts it in his vocation. You don't need God, but you, there's no reason to cancel God out of that, that particular theme. Just as we wind up, John, do we still have eternal truths? I mean, I'm wondering if we ever did, but, I mean, has that concept of an eternal truth completely disappeared in a postmodernist age, in an age that's so cheapened by, you know, social media in particular, in, in a post-truth age? I think we absolutely have universal truths. We have mo universal moral truths. There's a sort of instinctive sense in people who aren't psychopaths of what's just and what's not just. It's beyond what's taught to you as a child. It's not just socially constructed. There are absolute moral truths that normal people know in their bones. And in a way, that's why morality is not really a problem in a society like ours today. But I think there are also the great metaphysical truths in the Jesus story. We've been talking about that particular exam example or that particular archetype. There is a groping to what's at the centre of life, what's important. He in Mark talks about the I. Um, this is obscure. You're not going to get a philosophy seminar saying the I is one, two, three, four, and I'll spell it out for you. It doesn't work like that. The truth is embedded in the story. If you get into the story, just as you get into a film or you get into any work of art, and it works through you, if you're Tony Soprano watching The Sopranos, then the anguish, the hope, the despair of Tony Soprano will work through you, will come alive in you. I think truths are coming up here. They're all orbiting around the question of redemption. What will redeem my life? What will make sense of who I am and what I'm meant to do on the earth? They all come back in a way to the religious issue of redemption or salvation, the saviour. It's been terrific to speak with you, John. I'm willing to share with Tony Soprano the wonderment about the flight of ducks. Uh, that's where it stops. I don't want any other parts of Tony Soprano's character. Um, <laughs> look, it's been terrific to speak with you. Uh, John Carroll, sociologist and academic. John's latest book is The Saviour Syndrome, Searching for Hope and Meaning in an Age of Unbelief. Thank you for joining us, John, on the Religion and Ethics Report. My pleasure, Andrew. 
And that's the show. Next time, Isabel Kirshner of the New York Times discusses her book on the history of modern Israel. Now, it was written before the Gaza War, but it's still an illuminating look at the diversity and the deep divisions of that country. Israel defined itself from the beginning as Jewish and democratic. What we're seeing now is, yes, a clear divide between the people who want Israel to be more Jewish. And we have in the government people that I can really only describe as Jewish supremacists or nationalists who are on the fringes of Israeli politics. And they're now at the centre and pulling a lot of the strings. A big thanks to Hong Jang and Nathan Turnbull. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.